Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's happening at the Walt Disney World Resort, and maybe a little bit beyond that. I've got a few other things to talk about, sort of newsy-related items. Now, before I get into it, I wanted to make one point of clarification. I'm recording this before Florida's legislative session happens. So I know they're going to talk about Disney's Special Improvement District, and I will talk about that in a subsequent podcast. I've got some thoughts about what the Special Improvement District is, was, and where it is as of today. And if they do make a move to actually do away with it, I'll comment on that and talk about what it, you know, how that relates or talk about some of the political ramifications and whatever should they not do away with it. So just wanted to get that out of the way. We will be talking about that in, a, in the near future. So anyway, regarding Disney news that's going on today, I, I know that Bob Chapek has been having a very bad time of it, but you have to look at it from the shareholder perspective. For the most part, to this point, Disney shares have been doing well and the company has been making money. So people ask me, what do you think? Will Bob Chapek stay around? Will he still be the CEO next year? Will they retain him? Will they vote to remove him? And my short answer is, as long as the company is making money, as long as the stock price is doing well, he'll be retained. Now, should they happen to find themselves in a bigger problem or they lose the special improvement district and it actually impacts the bottom line, then I think they might make a move to to remove him. So for now, I think he's safe, but let's see what happens around him because it's not always within his control. There's a lot of things happening there well, well outside of his control. Now, the reason for the special legislative session is because the Disney and the state of Florida have had this really complicated relationship and it was about the don't say gay bill ostensibly, though they called the legislative session and the governor made it clear it was about Twitter, whatever. You know, but it, it was a guise, right? There was, there was more happening there. But it was interesting because when they called it, it had to do with this, this don't say gay bill and how that kind of played out and you know, the Disney's bungled response to it and Florida trying to be ridiculous in their tyrannical approach to everybody. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting reason to call the special session. Now, there was this group of people who decided to block an entrance to uh, Disney World. Uh, I believe it was the entrance over by Hotel Plaza Boulevard. And they, you know, had their cars, in air quotes, break down, and they were, um, they had, you know, basically blocked all the lanes. And they were saying, you know, it was a, some sort of a patriot thing where they were talking about Disney and all these things. And they were holding up signs, much like there have been at other places outside Disneyland. And I've seen some people outside Disney World that are holding up signs that are talking about how Disney supports pedophiles. And what troubles me is that people always seem to, some people anyway, always seem to kind of group pedophiles with being with homosexuality. And there's no connection there. They're, they're different classes of people. 
it's just, you know, the, the people that are pedophiles have, a, have some sort of, I guess, mental illness. I, I don't know what to call it exactly. But everyone else, whether you're gay or transsexual or bi or whatever, you're just a person and you love who you love. And I just can't understand how people connect those two. But anyway, back to that convoy. Last year, or the year before, the state of Florida actually passed a law. It was an anti-riot law. And essentially, one of the things that's in there is if you block a public thoroughfare, you are subject to arrest and should be convicted of a felony because you're blocking public roadways. And this was part of the whole thing about the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and whatever. But it was interesting that there was no response from the police, no response from Disney. This group of people just went out there and blocked a roadway for their own personal protest. And yet, no one said boo about it. And that bothers me too, because it feels like there should be a little more connecting the dots there. Because under Florida law, technically speaking, they did commit a felony. Just saying. You know, it's one of those things that we choose to apply laws in strange ways. Anyway, moving on. As we talk about Disney kind of returning to what passes for normal, you know, they're starting to open up more things, they're having more meet and character meet and greets that are opening up, you're starting to see uh, the uh, masking rules change and all of these things are happening around the parks. And so Disney is returning to something close to what they had before. You know, something I no one thing I noticed was they were talking about the international workers were coming back to work. And they said that's a good thing because it's gonna be just like it was. And Here's the interesting nugget to that. So remember that when Disney opened Epcot, they had this idea to bring in international workers to provide sort of this educational foundation and be able to do a cultural exchange about ideas with the countries that they come from. So that was the whole point of the cultural exchange. And Disney lo lobbied hard in the federal government to create the Q1 visa, which everyone calls the Disney visa because Disney made it so that their workers could come in and actually take it, they could take advantage of the visa and bring in cultural representatives. Now, the federal government made so many of them available, whether it was 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, doesn't matter. Some large number, some large portion of that were allocated to Disney to be able to bring in international workers. And then the rest were used for other cultural exchange programs around the country. So you know, there, was, there was a lot of use, misuse, abuse, whatever of everybody. Uh, in terms of the way they used the visa. When the last person was in the Oval Office, there was a discussion about removing the Q1 visa program and doing away with this cultural exchange. And they pared it back considerably and also changed it so that Disney is not the main benefactor from it. Disney has to go into the pool just like everyone else. So they have to request some of these visas, but it was clear that Disney was not gonna get the lion's share of them. So the number of people that they're bringing over is relatively small, they're not on the same Q1 visa necessarily, and it's not being supported the same way. So some of the people will be here for different visa reasons or different educational visas and whatever, and have to go through different visa programs. It's not as easy for Disney to just bring over cultural exchange people to join the Disney program and be a part of something. So it's, it's a little different, and the people, the types of people you'll see will probably be different when they actually start coming through the system again. Now what they'll also do when they're looking for people to populate the parks through the college program or other hiring practices, they'll look for people who are here on other visas or who have migrated here, emigrated here, uh, who have come from one of the countries or nearby one of the countries where the, uh, they're represented in World Showcase. And they will put those people to work in there too to help be cultural representatives of World Showcase. 
So I was like, hmm, this is really interesting because it's a different way of looking at it. It's not the same thing. So it's a return to close to normal, but it's not exactly the same normal. There's something different about the way they're bringing in people. I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, the other thing to consider is that Japan, the Japan, the Japan Pavilion, is actually uh, managed by the uh, Mitsukoshi Company. So they're bringing in their workers to work there. They are Japanese citizens who are here. Sometimes they're here on a special visa, sometimes they live here. But it's up to the Mitsukoshi Company to bring them here, so it's kind of an interesting mix. Morocco used to be that way until the pandemic and the Moroccan government, I, I, don't, I don't know the right word to use here. They sort of misused their relationship with Disney and stopped some of the payments for things, so Disney took over the pavilion. Uh, and populating people into it and made it their own. So used to be the whole uh, Marrakesh restaurant and the uh, Tang Tangerine Cafe, they were very specifically owned by uh, this Moroccan company that was linked to the king. And now they are not, they're Disney run restaurants. So it's a little different in the way that it runs and how it works and uh, the menus are different too. So I just thought that was another interesting little point. So just as you think about the cultural exchange and returning to normal, it's normal but different, or it's close to normal or it's normal adjacent. It's just kind of strange the way it all worked out. Now, something else I wanted to talk about was uh, the reservation program that they have at uh, the Walt Disney World Resort and Disneyland, that you have to have res a reservation to be able to go into the parks. So, there's a really interesting thing that happens. Disney is looking at it from the bottom line perspective. I've always said that Disney was trying to level a playing field for a long time to make it so that the locals, the annual pass holders, the people who knew Disney the best, no longer had advantages. They tried everything they could to level the playing field. Now they're trying to tip the playing field extremely to their highest value customers. And the reservation system allows them to do just that. What they're doing is they're setting aside reservations for people who are your highest value customers to make sure that they always have access to what they want to get to. So everyone else has to kind of wait in line. The whole goal is to change the way we think about the parks and the way things work. Now, I saw an interview with um, Bob Chapek where he talked about this a little bit. And uh, what he was saying was, quote, I must tell you that our ability to increase our guest experience through a reservation system and a very carefully managed demand ticketing system has been something that we really like. And I think guaranteeing our guests that they have a great experience no matter when they come, whether it be on the Christmas holiday or whether they be in the middle of the month of September, that's really important to us. So it's sort of code in a way that he's using where he's talking about how they're changing the whole system to try and make sure that their highest value customers get the most benefit. You know, the fact that they're putting Lightning Lane in for an extra 15 bucks to see some attractions, that's a clear signal that they're looking for those highest value customers to give them something. Now in return, Disney is offering some perks and benefits to the higher value customers and especially the vacation club owners where they're offering them some uh, offers like uh, they have extra magic hours or whatever they're calling it today, extra hours, resort hours, something they call it, at the end of the park day. So instead of being for everyone, the morning hours are typically for everyone. There's like a, an hour, half an hour, something like that, that varies from park to park where you, anyone that's staying on a, a Disney resort can go into it and take advantage of that. Not people who are staying off property, not people who are locals, that kind of thing. It's only the people that are staying uh, at a Disney resort can take it, the uh, advantage of the extra hours in the morning. The evening hours are only for 
the people that are the highest value customers, the people that are staying in the deluxe resorts, the people that are vacation club owners. And again, it's sort of changing the nature, the paradigm to a large degree, that you're moving people over to this new system of thinking about things where if you're willing to pay more, you're gonna get more in return. Which is exactly what we talked about, what I've talked about many times on this podcast, that Disney was trying to find a way to appease these guests to make sure they're spending the most amount of money and bringing in the most revenue. So I just found that really interesting that they're starting to change the, the, the way they think about it a little bit. So it's really, really kind of weird. I mean, you know, it takes some getting used to. And it, it's, it's not a huge deal to most of us. You know, we don't notice really, right? But when you look at the big picture, you start to see that things are changing that way. Now, the other thing is, of course, price point went up on tickets and they don't have as many annual passes available. Um, if you're out of state, you really, if you didn't carry it over during the pandemic, you don't have and you can't get an annual pass. So they've kind of changed the pricing to make sure that they're taking the most advantage of us as customers to come in and uh, uh, get more out of them. So it's just kind of funny that the way that works out. Now, I've also heard tell about when a park closes early and they decide that they're going to close it and uh, you don't know why. You just, you just hear that it's closed and you go, oh, okay, it's closed. And it's closing it earlier and something else is going on. Usually, and typically, it's either because they have some maintenance to do, general maintenance, though they do maintenance regularly, or they're renting the park out to someone. And what you're seeing is this is happening more often. So recently I saw a video from someone who had a wedding party there. They had closed down the Magic Kingdom and for however many hundreds of thousands of dollars, they invited their hundreds of guests to come in and enjoy the Magic Kingdom. There were some number of attractions open, there was some food, there was fireworks, whatever. And it was this special event just for this wedding party. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is what it's become. It's about that money. They're willing to close down the park. They're willing to take the hit on the typical revenue in order to get this special event revenue. I just, again, I find it interesting that they're doing these things to make more money, to increase their bottom line, to pad their profits. It's kind of interesting the way Disney has chosen to run their business these days. It's a very different sort of thing than it was when it opened or even into the 90s or early 2000s. Disney's a different place now, and I find that kind of interesting. Again, we may not notice really, we just see the park's going to close early, and we go, okay, and we move on our way and go to some other park. On a related note, related to people paying more for theme park privilege, I saw an article about some wannabe celebrity, some person who's recognizable in the news because the family just goes out there and they're just craving in what they do and they're, they're anything for a buck kind of thing. And they use their celebrity to that advantage. And they went to Disneyland and they were able to convince Disneyland to shut down a ride. I think it was It's a Small World so that they could ride it alone because they didn't want anyone else in their space. They wanted to just ride it by themselves, and they did. And there were a couple of guests who snapped pictures of this celebrity type person, and their bodyguards were coming over and harassing the people. You can't take pictures of them while they're in their, with their families and in these private places and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this is what's happening with the entitled people in this country, and it's starting to work its way in Disney World and Disneyland as well. It was just sort of one of those moments where you stop and you think, what, what's going on there? How did somebody manage to shut it down so they could ride it alone? Why can't everybody be treated the same? And they can't because the wealthy people are giving more and doing more and they expect more. And this is why you're hearing more entitled sort of discussions and you're hearing about all these little incidents that happen where somebody cuts in a line or someone stands in front of someone in a parade and it pisses them off and then they get all annoyed about it and then there's a whole brouhaha because people are feeling entitled. And there's something wrong with that because now we've created this class division at the Disney parks, which is kind of weird. 
I never expected to see this. I never expected this was going to happen, but this is exactly what's happened, and it's kind of a strange thing that's going on. It makes for very unsettling sort of moments when you're there and you see it happen. Just very odd. And again, it's about you know this class distinction and the fact that people with more money get more. And Disney has finally embraced it, where it used to be that everyone was treated equally. Didn't matter. You were, you were just there having fun with your family, and everyone else was too. And I can remember running into celebrities in the park. And most of the time they were left alone because they were just there, right? It wasn't anything big. It wasn't a big deal. You were just having a good time with your family. And uh, you didn't, nobody felt that entitlement. I don't know. It was weird. So something else I wanted to talk about, and it's the uh, Star Wars-themed hotel, the uh, Galactic Star Cruiser. There was a lot of hubbub about it just before it opened. They invited bloggers and uh, other uh, people to talk about Disney to come in and experience it. And there was a lot of relative negativity around it. Uh, people had a lot to say, not necessarily positive, about what was going on there. And then for a little while after, you heard about people talking about it. And again, it was moderately negative. But since then, you've heard next to nothing about it. Nothing good, nothing bad. And I found that kind of interesting, and I, I had to ask myself, why? why? Why did it suddenly leave the news? Well, of course, the blogosphere, you know, the people that talk about Disney, they're looking to um, get clicks. So, of course, they're going to say something that's, you know, controversial, good or bad, and uh, get people to, to uh, click on their, on their articles. And I find that now that people are going and they're spending the money to go there, they can obviously afford it. They're going for the adventure of it. They may or may not be Star Wars fans, truly. They may or may not actually be enjoying the Star Wars experience, but they're going because it's kind of fun. And I'll admit, it looks like there's some fun activities to do there. And if, you know, if it were a $600 thing, I might consider it. But for $6,000, not so much. So we don't really know what the reservation system looks like. You can go and look and see if there's availability, and it usually shows that there isn't. And I think that's an artificial thing that Disney does regardless, that they sort of uh, make things available or not available to increase interest. It's, a, it's an old tale. One of the things that I tell you, just to, for context, is years ago when uh, sports teams used to sell tickets to their events, you would see a market for people reselling them through scalping, right? You'd walk up to somebody and say, hey, you have any tickets available or can I buy some tickets from you? And you would resell tickets sort of on this black market standing outside the stadium or the event or the venue. And over time, it moved to something that was uh, more of a digital currency where you would have these tickets that you could exchange through, uh, at least online, you could, you could get in contact with someone and then you could mail them the tickets and they could go in. And so it was sort of something that happened, you know, it was a little bit broader than just standing right there in front of the uh, stadium. And then over time, it became these digital tickets, right? They were no longer the paper tickets, and they were digital now, and you could print them at home and all these things. And the sports teams figured out that they could control the marketplace and control the value of their tickets. So you would go to see, I'll use the Florida Marlins as an example. And a ticket to go see the Marlins was like 20 bucks. You would go see the Marlins play. But because people would buy a season ticket, and the season ticket price might be a little lower, it's like, let's say, 15 or $16 instead of the 20 because of the number of tickets you're buying, people would resell them through these third-party marketplaces and sell them for 10 bucks or even cheaper. If they wanted to go to certain games and the other games, they were just willing to make a little money on and make back some of their money. And then some of the bigger games, they might try to sell them for more. But they would sell tickets for like 10 bucks or less, right? So there's no money being made by the Marlins in that case, the, the, the owner of the, of the uh, product on the field. So they're selling the ticket for... 15 bucks to this consumer 
and then the consumer is getting back, let's say, 10 bucks on it. So they're out five, but over the course of the season, they may sell some other ones at 20 or more. So anyway, the Marlins were not making any money on this, and they figured out that they could make money on it by going in and actually buying up that inventory that was under $6 and then repricing it for their original face value of $20 or whatever price that they wanted to artificially set. So there were no more $6, $10 tickets available. Now they were all $20 through the resale market because the Marlins figured out and every team figured out that you could sell the ticket for 15, buy it back from somebody at six and then sell it again for 20. So they made $25 on that ticket. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? But Disney is essentially doing the same thing. They figured out how to control the market by artificially inflating the prices and setting a price point that works. I know it's the, the method is a little different, but the principle is the same. And the way that they manage the ticket inventory or their inventory of their hotels is a little different. Now, the other thing about the Star Wars hotel is they tell guests who go in at this point that are paying for it, they are not allowed to use video or take pictures in most places around the hotel. So that's kind of an interesting thing. When you find, when you figure that out, you go, oh, so it really does control things a little differently. Hmm, isn't that interesting? And finally today, I wanted to talk about the National Recording Registry that talked about the music they wanted to include in their registry of songs. Now this National Recording Registry is actually run by the Library of Congress. The National Recording Registry reflects the diverse music and voices that have shaped our nation's history and culture through recorded sound. The National Library is, is proud to help preserve these recordings, and we welcome the public's input. We received about a thousand public nominations this year for recordings to add to the registry. Now, the registry itself is about 600 total titles that are on there, so it's a very small list. Now, the really interesting thing is that it's, it's such a small number of musical items that they have in there that really represent our cultural history. But the reason it's noteworthy today is because they recognize the Sherman Brothers. For their song, It's a Small World. It's a Small World was specifically called out as being one of our nation's great treasures, as being culturally significant, because it looks at the children of the world coming together in this great place that Disney had created that was called It's a Small World for the New York World's Fair. And I just thought that was really, really neat and very interesting. And it, so the, the version of it that they actually inducted was the Disneyland Boys Choir version. Uh, it was first heard at the pavilion in the 1964-65 World's Fair in New York. There, guides costumed as Disney characters helped visitors into small boats that took them through tunnels adorned with brightly colored puppets representing children from around the world who cheerfully sang it to them. Today, the same experience can be had at Disneyland in California, where the ride was moved and reconstructed after the fair closed at the end of its second season in October 1965. Since then, the song has been heard daily ever since, as well as at the other Disney theme parks, making it one of the most widely heard and remembered songs of all time. The motto of the 1964-65 World's Fair was, peace through understanding, but day by day in the middle of the 1960s, there seemed to be less and less of that in the world. Still, the ride and the song became two of the most hopeful things about the fair, and they've endured. During the fair's first season, the song was only available on a seven-inch disc at the fair itself, but was later distributed to stores between the fair's two seasons and eventually became part of an album of the same name. I just thought that was really neat. I think it's really cool that that song in particular, people think it's like almost torturous to hear it, but it's such a catchy tune and it's so well-remembered that the Library of Congress picked it up and put it in the National Registry. That's pretty neat. It's a small world after all. It's a small 
one little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new, one little spark lights up for you. For my one little spark segment today, I wanted to point you to an article that I read in Science Magazine about the inequity between graduate students and the debt that they take on and their earning potential. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And it comes from Science Magazine and the headline reads, Black students take on more debt and get fewer slots on grants, data shows. And it's by Jeffrey Mervis. New data from the National Science Foundation on U.S. graduate student debt provide fresh evidence of racial disparities in the training of black PhD students in science and hint at how they might affect careers. One set of numbers shows that by the time they finish, black doctoral recipients in the natural sciences and engineering have racked up nearly twice the graduate school debt of their white, Asian, and Latino peers. Another set shows black PhDs are less likely than white, Asian, or Latino PhD students to receive two desirable sources of support, a research grant or traineeship. Black PhDs are also more likely to use their own resources to pay for their graduate studies. The new numbers come from the NSF's 2020 survey of earned doctorates. Sent to 55,283 students, including 3,095 black students, at 449 universities who earned a research-related PhD from July 2019 to June 2020. The survey doesn't speculate on the reasons for the disparities, but some researchers think those differences reflect broader racial inequities in the U.S. higher education. When asked about how much debt they had accumulated, newly minted black PhDs in the natural sciences and engineering reported a mean debt of $82,253, compared with $47,425 for white graduates, $44,150 for Latino graduates, and $41,197 for graduates of Asian descent. And the gap is widening. From 2015 to 2020, the mean debt of black students grew by 51% compared with an increase of 24% for white students, 18% for Asian, and 16% for Latinos. NSF also asked PhD recipients how they paid for tuition, rent, and other expenses. The answers reflect the range of funding mechanisms available for PhD students, including grants, teaching assistantships, fellowships, and even funding from employers but black students were less likely than white, Asian and Latino counterparts to receive two kinds of funding from a faculty member's research grant or from a traineeship program. Those mechanisms often provide an ideal entry into the type of cutting edge research that can lead to publications, visibility, and professional networking opportunities. In the life sciences, 21% of black graduates reported a research assistantship or traineeship as their primary source of support, compared with 35% for white students and those of Asian descent and and 28% for Latino students. The gap was wider in math and computer science with 36% of Asians and 28% of white students holding research assistantships compared with only 13% of black students and 21% of Latinos. There is little research on how debt affects the careers of PhD recipients in the sciences, but sizable debt can push students to follow the money rather than their passion, says sociologist Jason Hole of Dartmouth College, who has studied how undergraduate student debt affects social mobility. The disparity in support type could be the product of decentralized nature of graduate education in which departments or faculty members holding grants often decide who gets the research slots. I would be very surprised to find there are any, any explicit discriminatory policies, says education researcher Julie Postlet of the University of Southern California. But whenever there are resources to be allocated, there are opportunities for racial bias, and I think it's reasonable to assume that they would follow the same patterns that affect all of U.S. higher education. For instance, Postlet says, decision makers can favor students like themselves, which would create obstacles for students who are black or from other groups underrepresented in science. 
Basing awards on students' research experience or standardized test scores, which have been shown to put black students at a disadvantage, could also play a role. Graduate education is at the end of a long pipeline at which there is discrimination at every level, says sociologist James Pine, a research associate at Stanford University and co-author of a 2020 paper that found that debt deters students of color from obtaining an advanced degree. So the selection process for research assistantships and traineeships is important. I'd like to be a fly on the wall when the departments make those decisions. The SED study data shows that black PhD recipients were more likely to self-fund at least part of their studies. In the life sciences, 34% of black PhDs reported relying primarily on their own resources, compared with 14% of white and Latino students and 10% of Asian students. Some students who have self-financed likely took loans that can take years to repay. For black students unfamiliar with how graduate education operates, the challenge of securing adequate financial support can be one more barrier to the entry to the profession. I grew up with family members who were professors, so I only applied to graduate programs that promised to fully fund their studies, says Dominique Baker, an education policy professor at Southern Methodist University. But I'm definitely an outlier among black academics. I just thought that story was kind of interesting and worth talking about for just a moment. Well, anyway, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 